Welcome to the Unsettled Lives podcast. On this podcast, we'll be dusting off the history of Black communities in America. This bi-weekly podcast is about unearthing the hidden narratives of land loss, urban renewal, disinvestment, and gentrification among Black Americans. My name is Celia Burke, and this is the Unsettled Lives Podcast. You're listening to episode six. Apologies if it sounds a little bit different this time around. The Wi-Fi is out at my house, and so I am at a new space. It's a little more echoey, um, so I'm hoping that it doesn't annoy you too much, and we'll just push through. So what's going on these days? Seems like the world's still intact against all odds. In the meantime, still out here trying to hibernate. Um, <laughs> at least I am. And I think that um, it's feeling more like winter here in New Orleans now. Um, we had a really unusually warm December. I was out and about. It was like springtime, and that is not normal even for the South. And so it was very enjoyable and also just very much like this is obviously climate change. Um, and so just bearing that in mind is really important. But I, I, you know, I guess taking the enjoyment where I can in life. Other than that, I have been pretty busy these days with work and with life, as many of us are. And I know that there's so much going on, and I hope that you're able to find time and ways to take care of yourself. I will always encourage you to do that. And hopefully um, our in community, in relationship with folks who are taking care of you and who you are taking care of. With that being said, have you talked to a neighbor today? I have not been talking to neighbors as of late, at least not actively because it's been so cold. There have been a few um, very logistical things to um, talk to neighbors about in um, recent days. And so that's happened, but that genuine connection, yeah, it's, it's harder right now. I think when it's warm, you can always find people out um, in front of their house or on their porch uh, around here in this city. It's a very porch sitting culture city, which is lovely. And if you don't know what porch sitting is, it really is just sitting on your porch. Um, there's beautiful porches here in warmer weather. It's much easier to find that in that space where it's both private property and both an inviting, welcoming place for folks passing by or for neighbors. Um, and so that's a big thing down here, and I really appreciate that, and I really appreciate that. You can find a lot of that here, and I'm looking forward to more neighborly connection in the spring and in the warmer weather, but for now, I'll 
try to find those small connections where I can, even in the winter time. I want to uh, touch back on last week's episode, episode five, um, Black People in New Mexico, is the title, about Blackdom, New Mexico. And over the past couple of weeks since doing that episode, so much has come to light for me. I was informed through messages that there were some additional information out there about Blackdom and Blackdom's origins and the um, origins of the people who started Blackdom, that is Frank Boyer. There are folks out there doing some incredible research and I am grateful that I was informed that there is way more out there than I shared and we'll be sharing some resources in the show notes so that you can find out more and learn more about Blackdom, New Mexico, because there are people out here doing some incredible work. Um, we've got Blackdom Town Site Company, which is uh, at Blackdom underscore Town Square, which is an organization that is doing both the work of historic preservation as well as providing an incubator for Black businesses in the Southwest. So that's pretty cool. And then we've got Dr. Timothy E. Nelson at Blackdom underscore thesis, who is a scholar of Blackdom, New Mexico, who has done extensive research on this place and knows way more than I could have possibly shared with you. And so I, again, will share those in the share notes and invite you to explore more if you want, because there's way more than I can share. And so this episode of Unsettled Lives is going to be a little bit more personal because that is what I have the space and capacity to do this week. And I think that it is a signal to myself and to all of you um, that there's a shift that needs to happen. And I've just kind of found this shift happening inside of me over time, but it is really important to me that I share that with you and take steps to move in this new direction. Before I get started, um, I'm still going to do a land acknowledgement. I am not going to be spotlighting a community today. This is going to be more about this podcasting process and what direction I'm thinking of going into. But as I said, I live in New Orleans. New Orleans' original name is Bulbancha, which is a Choctaw word. It means the place of many tongues. And that is because Bulbancha has always been a trading port for many different people from different places with different heritages, heritages and speaking different languages, just like it is now. New Orleans is known as a port city and it's a melting pot of different, and I hate that term, but it is, it really is a melting pot of different cultures. 
um, for a variety of reasons. And I will say that I don't like that term because it's often used to describe the American experience as very organic and as something very, I would say, much more tame than it is. But the culture of New Orleans, as well as the culture of the United States, is built on um, indigenous genocide and enslavement. And we cannot forget that. So Bobancha was not really a permanent residence for one group of people. And I think that's really important to remember because New Orleans maybe isn't the safest place to live as an environment, in an environmental way. Um, as much as I love it, it is in a precarious place and there has been a lot of engineering done there's a lot that has to be done to keep this city from flooding. <laughs> it's not the safest place. And I bow to the indigenous wisdom that understood that this was a great place to come together, just as it is now, but maybe not a great place to live. And so as a result, the Chirimacha, the Choctaw, Ishak, Tunica, and Natchez nations were some of the nations who came together in Bobancha to trade and to commune. And that is my land acknowledgement for today. And I often think that there's so much we can learn. Like I, I'm blown away, continue to be blown away by just really thinking about how intentional the people were about keeping this as a place to meet and not to settle and thinking about colonization and how there was a desire to force settlement on this land this fragile land and we're seeing the consequences of that today something to think about not to start the episode with that level of <laughs> pessimism, I suppose. So we're going to move on to today's topic, which is a little bit more about my story. I spoke a bit about why I am starting Unsettled Lives in episode one, in the introduction. I am an urban planner by training. That is not currently my profession, but that is what I have a master's degree in. And when I was studying, I was primarily focused on history, I took a historic preservation class. It was one of my favorites. It was interactive. I was focused on the Black experience, on gentrification, on belonging. What I wanted to examine was much 
less tangible than the traditional elements of urban planning, which can be very technical from constructing new streets and adding more safety features to roads, building infrastructure for bikes and buses, calculating stormwater retention, figuring out how to make the environment more friendly to the ecosystem, housing, providing housing and affordable housing for folks. So many different elements to urban planning. It's such a broad field. And I use that to my benefit to study community and the possibilities of working closely with community um, in my own work, as well as if I was to work through a city or county or firm, being able to find a way to connect closely to the community. I was really easily able to take courses that allowed me to focus on this. I, of course, had requirements, but I was able to take a class on displacement, especially the displacement of refugees. I was able to take a class on trauma in diverse communities, as well as a course on Golagichi community and culture, which I'll talk more about in a moment. What I'm discovering more and more is that the work that I want to do is not necessarily something that there's a ready-made career for. I would also say that the work that I want to do could be done maybe easily in academia, which is a pathway I've considered, but it's not necessarily the pathway that I want to go because what I'm discovering about myself is that I like to research, but I don't like to research, if that makes sense. I'm always wanting to know the stories of things and get some background information if there is a plant that I need to know about, I will look it up. And I love that. If there is like some type of chemical that I've never heard of and I'm worried that it might be dangerous, I will look that up. When it comes to the insects that invade my garden every year, I will totally look it up and determine what is the easiest way to get rid of this pest without using pesticides, things like that. But diving into research, academic research, historical research, any kind of research is not my jam. It's not. 
And I've come to that realization the more and more that I've been doing this work. There was a part of me that thought, well, maybe if I was doing this full time, because the fact of the matter is I have a full-time job. It requires a lot of time, energy, brain power. And so I will admit that putting together this podcast, even on a biweekly basis, can be a challenge. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that if I were to have this as a full-time job, that I would want to be just researching. When I was considering doing a doctorate, I was really considering something that had a very obvious applied framework, which means that I would be in the community doing work. I would not be stuck in the ivory tower, just doing my research and studies and all of that. I would do as much as I can to really get out there and learn by doing and learn by building and connecting. When I decided to talk about Black communities and their stories, um, it was about 2018, and I had finished all of my credits for to graduate from my master's program, but I had not finished my thesis. And I was in the throes of trying to finish this thesis, and I was starting to quickly realize that I was working in a really racist environment. And I was talking to a former friend of mine about um, all the stories that I was reading through the research for my thesis and how I wanted to tell them to the world because I wanted to talk about collective ongoing trauma in Black American communities. And I just wanted the world to know that this was something that we needed to consider and that we needed to hold dear and that we needed to just understand in order to have compassion for one another. And so I was in a different mind space when I first conceived of this, this work. I was wanting to do a blog at first. And then I realized that I just didn't have it in me to just write every week or every two weeks, but maybe a podcast. And so I shifted to a podcast and I'm super grateful that I shifted into that space. And now, even after this short time, I'm like, okay, something else needs to happen because there is no flow happening. You know, do you know what I mean? Do you understand what flow is? I hope you do. I hope that all of you are out there doing some kind of work that when you do it, it feels like you don't want to stop. It feels good. It feels easy. It feels purposeful for you, like internally purposeful. There are so many people out there who can just work, 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 and it might not be work that they enjoy, but they can put their nose to 
the grindstone and just keep pushing. And I'm not one of those people. <laughs> I'm not. And there was a time when saying that, admitting that made me feel really self-conscious and really like made me feel like I was lazy because we live in a very capitalistic and work-centric society. But I'm no longer afraid of admitting that that is not how I operate. I move really slowly. I really like to connect. It takes me time to process things. And when I do, I can come up with some really interesting ideas. But when I feel rushed, it doesn't feel good. And I find that there is some level of flow in creating a podcast. I love the process of recording. I love the, the process of editing, actually, especially because I'm using some really supportive software to do that editing. And it just makes it much easier. But the flow is not happening when it comes to the historical research. And that doesn't mean, I, re I recognize that that doesn't mean that I don't love history and I don't value these stories. What it does mean, though, is that there is a way in which I'm doing this work that is not su sustainable for me. And I think that I've been wanting this podcast to help me find a place, a pathway to doing more work in the community in the future. But I think the reality is, is that I'm ready to do more work in the community now. And I'm ready to do things with people, with my hands, because I sit at a desk all day, every day for my, my nine to five. And so it's important to me to recognize that it's okay that I don't want to keep doing that after hours or on my weekends. As, I, as I've said, as I've disclaimed, I'm not a historian. I love history. But when I think about and reflect on my love of history, it's clear to me that the way that I've learned history most effectively is through storytelling and through engagement. I was a little girl in Texas and learning history in Texas was not good for me. I did not like history when I was in my first few years of elementary school, not only because Texas history is very um, white supremacy centric, at least at, at the schools that I attended, um, and the stories glorify the um, takeover of Texas from Mexico. It just made enslavement in Texas look like a minimal experience with no accountability whatsoever. As a little black girl, that was very unhealthy for me. It made me feel like there was nobody to blame for enslavement. So maybe enslavement was our fault somehow as black people. It also was, as somebody with, with Texas roots, and I will just, I'll just be very honest here, I've been doing some family history and I've known for years that I, even though I am a clearly a black woman um, and living a black woman's experience, um, I have 
a three times great grandfather who was a white Scotch Irish man and a slave owner in Texas. And um, as of recently, I've just been learning more and more about him and his family because I'm forcing myself to, because it's difficult, but it's important to know that piece too and, and to understand that that too is trauma. So yeah, I, I for sure just have a lot of deep feelings about learning history as a child in Texas and how that didn't make me feel in any way good about myself or about history. And I didn't quite know how to frame it or understand why as a kid. I moved to New Hampshire, which is a very white state. I moved to New Hampshire and I was in New Hampshire in the fifth and sixth grade. And I was felt very alone as a black girl. I, I had a lot, of, I had friends, I was socializing. I often say that I really enjoyed my experience in, in New Hampshire because I loved being outdoors. There were so many trees. It felt very just great for somebody who loved to explore and be outside. And that was me. And I always kind of knew that I was different, but it wasn't like everybody's telling me all the time, Salia, you're so different. Salia, you're so different. And I'm grateful for that. And my favorite one of my favorite teachers, my absolute favorite teachers, um, was my fifth grade teacher, and her name was Mrs. Gustafson. And she clearly loved her job. And she loved history. And I was in southern New Hampshire, and so we weren't too far from Boston. So we would go to the Freedom Trail in Boston during our history lessons, especially when we were talking about um, the 13 colonies and the American Revolution. And we could see places where the events that we were talking about had happened and there was still evidence. Things had been perfectly preserved. There were names on, on tombstones in historic cemeteries. There were churches that we had heard about um, on Paul, Paul Revere's ride. There were um, places where important documents had been signed in American history. And for me, that was, that was what got me to love history. And I still wasn't seeing myself, really. But I was engaging in stories and I was engaging in being in the space, which made it more exciting for me. And that's really what drives me, you know, when it comes to any kind of research, historical research, that's really what drives me. In 2019 and 2020, I was commissioned to do research on a farm in central Georgia that a couple of friends of mine had bought together. And I was coming in to, to talk about spatial harm that might've been happening and potential ideas for spatial healing. And being at the farm 
it just it just brought so many feelings to me like the energy i could feel the energy i could look at things and see them if i had been doing all of the research without seeing that place it would have been a much harder for me but i was able to not only go see the place but i was also able to talk about my observations with my um, colleagues who were also doing research and with the owners and just put my ideas out. But it was really important to me that I was able to talk about my experience and the feelings that I was having as a Black woman um, on a farm in central Georgia and all of all that that entailed. I was asked to do that research because my thesis in my master's program was on the preservation of Gullah Geechee culture and how important it is for urban planners to be instrumental in doing that because it is in danger of disappearing due to displacement. And I tied that into an overall thesis about the trauma of displacement in the Black American community and how when you don't belong, it's really hard to maintain a level of community and a level of culture. And it was really important to me to focus on the Gullah Geechee community in particular. If, if y'all don't know what that is, the Gullah Geechee community is kind of the same thing with two different names. So you'll often hear the term Gullah in South Carolina and um, Geechee in Georgia, but the Gullah Geechee presence is from Southern North Carolina to Northern Florida. And it is a, I guess, subgroup of African American culture um, that is known for a particular way of speaking, particular music, food, African retention is extremely strong. Spirituality, oof, spirituality. Um, they're most known geographically in and around Charleston, South Carolina, and in some parts of Georgia, the parts of Georgia where my family come from. Um, my family is not confirmed um, Gullah Geechee, but it's quite possible that we are and that that is something that's just been lost in my heritage because that happens, that has happened. There has been some shame um, in being from this community because speaking with more of the dialect marked you as potentially uneducated, which is shameful, but that's what people would believe. Anything that is close to Africa is marked as uneducated. Even African-American vernacular, English, A-A-V-E, which is now a confirmed language, is still considered by many to be a sign of you're not educated and you're not speaking English well. English evolves. English is a mixture of many different languages. English itself is not a particularly beautiful language. Um, you can do beautiful things with English, but I would say 
the sound of it is not necessarily something to be weeping over. And there are some people who think that the sound of the language with the inflections of Africa is even uglier, and I do not believe that. I think that um, there is a lot to be proud of in the Gullah Geechee culture because it is just so rich. And it is one of the few communities of Black people in the United States that has maintained such strong cultural ties to Africa. In fact, there is even some music and there are some words that you can clearly tie to specific um, indigenous languages in Africa, especially Sierra Leone. Like there's a deep connection and tie to Sierra Leone. Um, most of the people from the Gullah Geechee community are descended from folks who came from what we now call um, the Rice Coast. I'm sorry, that's not the right term for it. The Windward Coast. So Sierra Leone is one of them, but there are a number of countries in West Africa. But I, I mentioned rice because these particular people were brought to the U.S. to support the burgeoning and eventually extremely successful rice crop economy that um, was happening, that the British were running in the southern United States. So rice was a big business, and they knew that there were, there were Africans that they could enslave who were very skilled in the cultivation and harvesting of rice. Um, and one thing that I learned a lot when I was doing my studying in, in grad school was that colonizers knew which places to go to get particular people in Africa to do certain types of skilled work. They knew where to go. They were very selective. Um, so this was a very planned thing. It was very much, very well thought of and diabolical in that sense. I say all that to say, Gullah Geechee culture could and, and is considered by many an indigenous culture to the U.S. because it is its own thing. It is what was created and formed in the United States in the sea islands and coastal parts of the southern United States because many times a lot of these folks in these um, on the plantations on the sea islands and coastal parts of Georgia, South Carolina, um, Florida, North Carolina, they were often left a little more independent. They could maintain their language and culture and spirituality a little bit more because oftentimes plantation owners would leave. It was the conditions were very harsh. It was extremely hot and humid and buggy and swampy. And so maybe with the exception of like one overseer, they would leave these folks to do the labor and they were able to maintain elements of their culture. But because not everybody was from the same place, 
they would often kind of come together and communicate and come and put their language together. And um, I'm simplifying it so much. I really am. And that's, I'm sorry. But essentially, that is how Golokigichi um, culture came to be. And that is very unique to the United States. And I wanted to study this particular community because I knew that I had roots in that area because I felt really called to it actually. And because I had been on this route of understanding how displacement is, can be destructive, forced displacement can be destructive to community and culture. And while there is still a Gullah Geechee community, there, there is displacement happening through um, something called heirs property. I won't go deeply into it, but it's essentially when all the descendants of a um, landowner all have claim to a piece of land, all of the descendants. And because all of them have the like equal claim to the land, a person who's never been there, like say their family, um, parts of the family migrated north during the Great Migration. If they found out that they had claim to a piece of land, even if there is already, there's like they have a family member, a distant family member living on that land, paying taxes, taking care of the land, that relative up north, if they get an offer to, um, you know, have the land purchased from them, for a certain sum of money, they can sell it because everybody has the same equal claim to the land, even if they don't, they aren't all living there. And this is something that is very common in Gullah Geechee, um, land ownership. Um, I'll say in that configuration, I guess because a lot of folks would orally say this is my land and i'm passing it down to you rather than writing formal wills um this is not uncommon in the black community it it is really beautiful that we still um have so many elements of oral storytelling and sharing but this does not work in the legal world of the u.s as well as um, some folks just would not write a will. <laughs> some folks would not write a will. People are afraid of writing a will. They think that writing a will means that they will die. Everybody's going to die. Writing a will not, will not usher you into death and not writing a will while you are still lucid and able to make good decisions is going to harm your family <laughs> and that's something but that's something that happens all the time and so heirs property is a big thing as well as climate change and development climate change because 
the land, especially around Charleston and South Carolina and the Sea Islands is very sensitive. Um, sea level rise is eroding the islands and the beaches and the land in general. And the development that is happening because people want waterfront properties is also ushering in and making climate change, the, the impacts of climate change more drastic at a faster rate. Because Gullah Geechee culture and history is super tied to the land, the destruction of the land, the removal of people from their property is harmful to the culture. And I tied this experience in this community to the experience of Black Americans as a whole. I, at least I tried to. I was really grateful that I got to speak to a number of people in Charles, in and around Charleston um, for a week when I was doing my thesis. I was incredibly grateful to speak to Queen Quet, who is known as the one of the, the leaders of the Gullah Geechee community. And she is an incredible spokesperson, advocate, just freedom fighter for Gullah Geechee people. Um, and I will link to her in the show notes because you need to follow her and you need to see what she's doing because she is out here fighting to preserve the culture, to preserve the land. And I was able to speak to her and I feel incredibly grateful that I was able to do that. And she got me right together too. I did not know what I was doing. <laughs> she got right, she got me right together. And then she was very kind to me um, as well. Rest in power, Dr. Are Ofunuyan. He was um, the leader, um, the founder of the Gullah Society, which was created to preserve Gullah um, grave sites, cemeteries, because those are also under threat by developers, by people who don't understand what they are because they don't look as manicured or as perfect as a cemetery in a white community. Um, Dr. Ofanian, Dr. O, um, was also an adjunct professor at the College of Charleston, and he was one of the folks that I interviewed um, back in 2017. And I had not been in contact with him, but I found out just by searching for him in Google that he had passed away in um, fall 2020. And that made me really sad, but he, you know, um, I hope that he is resting with power and re resting in power. I know that he must be an extremely powerful ancestor and he is probably very exalted amongst the ancestors for wanting to protect the, the grave sites, the places where they had been buried. There, are, there were a number of people that I did interview. And one of the things that made it hard for me to put this podcast out in the first place <laughs> Um, or anything out was that um, once I had I had been struggling to do this thesis, 
been struggling, struggling, struggling in my last year of, of master's of my master's program and also while working full time in my last job. And I finally finished it in summer 2019. I had one advisor, which I now know was not smart. <laughs> there were a number of things I reflect on. I'm like, oh, no. And I had not been actively contacting the folks that I had interviewed to make sure that I was representing them in the best possible light, making sure that the things that I had recorded and that I had written felt true to them um, because I just didn't know any better. I often, you know, feel really bad because I wasn't a good researcher and that's not necessarily my fault. Um, this is how you learn. But I think I had put so much pressure on me not, um, not to be this person who just did research on this community that had been exploited over and over again by academia. I didn't want to be that person. And I kind of ended up being that person. It doesn't matter that I'm Black. It doesn't matter that I potentially have roots in this community. When you come from a place of privilege, you have a responsibility. And my responsibility was to try and make folks feel included in the process of my research. But because I didn't understand that, I kept things really close to my chest because these were my ideas that I was writing about. And I was really self-conscious and really scared about sharing my ideas. But this is what you have to do in order to build community. You have to share yourself in a way that's very vulnerable. And that is maybe why a lot of people don't want to be in community because that vulnerability is very scary. I totally get that. I totally get that. But now that I'm learning, um, when I did my research on the farm, that farm research that I did, I was able to get that opportunity, not only because these folks were my friends, but also because they were really excited about the research that I, the ideas that I had put forth in my thesis. And um, when I did that research, I made sure that any quotes that I had gotten, I verified those with the, the folks I gotten quotes from. I was like, does this sound good? Does that, does you feel represented? And, you know, I verified pictures that I'd taken and things like that to make sure everything I was describing was right. And I got corrected a couple of times and I was so glad that I checked in, but I didn't understand that that was what I needed to do. Cause that was my first major research project. And that was my first time doing like serious interviews with the community as like a case study. And so that doesn't mean that I don't, I didn't love what I did. Um, I was certainly really sad because I did get some feedback after I put this thesis out in the world that I had misrepresented somebody and their words and the way that they spoke. And I didn't feel like I had, but they felt that way. And if I had checked in with them, I could have remedied that before I published, but it was published and there was nothing I could do. And instead of being really proud of my work, I started to feel like I just couldn't do anything right. So it was really, it took me a long time to feel comfortable coming into this space of putting my work out there, of doing research. And I know I've grown because getting feedback about my last episode did not hurt me. It made me feel like, okay, you know, I, I want to make sure that I share people that 
folks can connect with and maybe even do a future episode where I correct some things. But I'm also thinking, what more could I do? What could I do differently as a whole? Because again, I'm starting to realize that I want things to flow more in my work, in my work outside of my job, in the work that makes me feel whole, that makes me feel like empowered, that makes me feel like I'm living in my passion. I like talking to y'all. <laughs> I like telling stories. I love hearing stories. I love the idea of engaging fully concepts of communal care and collective healing of trauma and healing through the earth, with the earth, plant medicine, being outside, whatever there is that the earth provides. I'm also thinking about how important collaboration is for me. This is something else I've also come to realize as I've grown older. I work best with others. I have spent a lot of time isolating myself. I've had social anxiety, and I used to think that I didn't like people, and people didn't like me, and that was that. And I now realize that that's just anxiety, that's just lies. Um, and that I really do like people. I do have to give myself some space from people and I don't like everybody, but I generally like people generally and, and spending time with people gives me some energy. Um, and I like sharing ideas and I love working with people sometimes, especially people who are very passionate about the work that they're doing and or anything, the art or anything. So I really am thinking that it would be really nice to have a co-host. I'm putting it out there both as a manifestation and as a call to those who are interested that I would really like a co-host. I certainly invite people who are passionate about Black history and healing and plant medicine too. You don't have to be passionate about all of those things, but if you feel that being in conversation with me and recording it would be very fun and enjoyable and even healing to you, I would love to work with you. I find that my favorite podcasts and even sort of media people are those working together. I, my pod, the podcasts I love the most are usually those where people are doing interviews or conversations with others or where there's just a group of people talking. I just love seeing the way that people's different energies play off of one another. And I think that I would like to move into that um, as a future pivot for this podcast. And I think that if said person was interested in doing most of the historical research or in doing a good portion of it, that would be great. Because I think I would love to focus more on the healing than on the 
the, the story of pain, though I do want to discuss that story of pain and listen. I'm a good listener. <laughs> My ideas around, as I said, talking about these stories of, of Black communities and the traumas that they, they have experienced was really just to say, hey, we've been through some shit. We've been through some, we've been through a lot. As a black community, we've been through a lot. <laughs> Historically, presently, it's been a lot. And I think in some ways that was me wanting to prove to folks outside of our community, as well as to ourselves, that we deserve compassion. And I don't wanna do that anymore. I know that we deserve compassion. So I want to do the work of healing. I want to support the work of healing. That is what I want to focus on. Because I already know it's just bad. It's been bad. And sitting in that in my free time is not something I want to do. But what I find joy in is looking at concepts of community healing, community psychology, collective care, plant medicine, all of that. Those are the things that give me a lot of life and energy. Those examinations are where I find the most flow. So that's my update on this podcast. It doesn't mean that it's ending. I think that I'm going to do some strategic pauses in the future, and I want to keep you up to date on that. I just think that it's time. I already just see that it's time to evolve because there, there needs to be joy in the work that I'm doing outside of my job. I, I hope that I hope that if you are out there with a nine to five and you feel called to something else, that you find joy in that something else. And also just recognizing that it took me a long time to put myself out here into the world, to put my voice out here. And this is how I learn. It's just like putting my thesis out there and getting that feedback. It's how, this is how I learn and grow. I've learned that I am still in love with learning about our communities, but it's gotta, it's gotta happen differently. It's gotta happen differently, y'all. I really appreciate you for listening if you've made it this far. This is a lot of just, just rambling. I really went off of any kind of script and I am grateful for you all listening because I went on a journey there, but this is, this was my journey. This was my journey to now. This was my journey to my passion. And if you stuck around and listened, I'm so grateful that you did that. Thank you. Folks, I did not want to end this episode without talking about some plant medicine because that is 
that is a, a key focal point of this podcast, regardless of what direction it goes, because this is where my passion is taking me these days. I want to remind you all that um, I am not a doctor or an herbalist, and I recommend that you see one of those or both before consuming any of the medicines that I tell you about today. Herbs can interact with medicines and cause harm despite their health benefits, and they don't work the same for everybody, so be careful. Talk to a professional before you really dive into these herbs and plants and roots and everything. So again, I am taking my research on this um, from Working the Roots, Over 400 Years of Traditional African-American Healing by Michelle E. Lee. This book has been showing up a lot. And I'm going to just focus on a plant that I've actually come to get to know pretty well um, as a native plant in Louisiana, and that is elderberry. Maybe y'all have heard of this. You can often find elderberry in cough medicines and any kind of flu, cold or flu um, aid medicine um, at a Walmart or Walgreens. It's everywhere. I'm sure you've heard a lot about it in this pandemic. It's come up a lot as something to boost the immune system. It is native to a lot of different places, but um, the Sambucus nigra, which is what I'm talking about, is black elderberry, is very common all over Louisiana. I see it in New Orleans all the time. Now that I know what to look for, the different flowers, all of that, what the berries look like, I'm very clear on what it is, and I'm always so excited to see it when I'm walking around or on a bike ride. Um, the botanical name for all elderberry is Sambucus. And so you'll always see um, that followed by the the term of the specific species of um, elderberry. So I'm going to be talking about elderberry as a whole, but what I be working with down here specifically is Sambucus nigra. And I really love this plant. I I feel like I talk a lot about different plants over the weeks and I don't always have like an actual relationship with the plants that I tell you all about Um, one day maybe, but um, I'm usually just kind of sharing what is regionally available. And I'm really excited to be sharing a plant with you that I've actually um, been in relationship with. So if you don't know, elderberry is used to support your immune system. It is good for coughs, colds, flus, and bronchitis. You're going to hear me flipping some pages. So it is an antioxidant, which means that it is, uh, it acts as a scavenger and it cleans up the free radicals of metabolism and other environmental toxins like smoke and pesticides in the body. 
which is amazing. So we hear a lot about that in different foods like dark chocolate, like green tea. So um, elderberry is also an antioxidant. It's antiviral. So it kills viruses, obviously, and that is something that we absolutely need. It is diaphoretic, which means that it reduces fevers. It is diuretic, which it means is it incre increases urination and reduces fluid retention and aids the kidneys. It is an expectorant, which, which means it brings up mucus and other material from the lungs, the bronchi, and the trachea and promotes drainage um, in your, from your respiratory tract. It is an immune stimulant, which means that or immunostimulant, which means that it stimulates the immune system. We want that. We want this thing, the immune system to be stimulated when you are fighting off a virus. Um, elderberry medicine is made from the berries, the leaves, and the roots of the elderberry tree. And it can be used to, to as I said, treat a variety of ailments, especially in African-American medicine. It's been used for colds, coughs, flu, fever, bronchitis, asthma, nervous conditions, inflammation, rheumatism, diabetes, infections, and constipation. And it has been suggested to me, it's, it's suggested in this book, it's been suggested to me by herbalists in the area that you take elderberry regularly on like a daily basis if possible, but just like on a regular basis, instead of just taking it when you get sick because it is, as I said, it will um, support your immune system for throughout the year. So it's better to um, just strengthen your immune system all year round rather than just use it as something to try and fight a virus in the moment. Though you can still take it, but I think sometimes maybe people will overdo it when they are sick and um, it just might be better to just keep taking it regularly throughout the year. When you get sick, take it as you would normally. Um, don't overdo it because, um, you know, you don't want to do overdo anything. Um, elderberries also have vitamin C, A, B, amino acids, and other um, necessary nutrients for the body. People make it into a tea with the berry or the flowers. They will make it into a tea with the bark or roots. You can also make a elderberry cough syrup, which is what I have done before, or I've certainly been at a class where I made elderberry syrup, which was great. And I um, have also seen it um, used, it's, it's, it can also be used as elderberry tonic. And when I've um, had it as a syrup, you really can just take that on a regular basis. It doesn't have to be when you're coughing or sick. Um, I've heard of some people even incorporating it in their, to their food. Um, so you can make an, a thicker elderberry syrup and add that to your pancakes or on top of your ice cream. So make it fun. You know, it doesn't have to be, it is medicine. Food can be medicine too, though. So it can be something that you actually enjoy and that can be fun. What I will say is that you, you have to make sure you have to take care to boil elderberry and flower um, for a, a while. It says in this book, um, you know, 10 to 15 minutes you should let it steep. Um, if using the if using only the flowers, 20 minutes of using the berries, um, you want to be careful. Um, this is not something you want to eat um, just straight from the tree. You could try it 
it, it's fine in a small amount, but it is toxic. It, it has cyanide. Um, so you need to be careful. What I'm saying is these plants that are medicinal can sometimes be really harmful too, which is why you have to have a respectful relationship with everything. So be sure to do your research, talk to your doctor, um, talk to an herbalist. An herbalist would be great because this is how I've learned so much about the plant and built a relationship with the plant is it really is just very important to recognize that yes, elderberry is great. You find it everywhere. Also, if you don't process it correctly, it can be very toxic. So be careful. One thing that I think is very fascinating is that people don't always know that they're looking at elder trees, elderberry trees, when they are um, seeing them in the city. And a lot of people look at them as weeds. They're very hardy plants. They'll pop up everywhere and they'll pop up in groups. Um, so it's a very resilient plant. You have to be really careful um, if you're growing one because it's you're probably not just gonna grow one there probably will be two that will pop up. Somebody did say this to me. If you're planting one elder tree, expect another one to come with it. They're very, they, they love to sprout. <laughs> um, but people look at them as weeds here when they don't know what they are. And they're really cool plants and really cool trees. And they have kind of a bushy element. And I get it, but I'm also just like, this is free medicine if you know what you're doing. So it's pretty cool. So that is my uh plant medicine for this week of very personal things i'm talking about about a relationship a personal relationship that i have with the plant and so i think that it is all coming full circle oh my gosh that was very vulnerable that was a vulnerable piece of of work for me and if you stuck around, thank you very, very much. I really do appreciate you listening each week and supporting. If you are from any of the places that I've spotlighted in the past or know any good stories, you can share them with me via email at unsettledlivespod at gmail.com or at unsettledlivespod on Instagram. You can also share your reactions to any of the stories that I've shared or how you felt learning something new. And if you are interested in collaborating or if you know of somebody who might be interested in collaborating, connect them with me or connect yourself with me <laughs> um, through the Gmail and through the Instagram email and handle that I've shared with you and that will also be in the show notes. All right. I will talk to you again soon. Take good care. Bye.